Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here this morning. As Paul said earlier, if you're a visitor, it's great to have you with us. If you haven't been for a while, it's fantastic to see you back with us. Those words are phenomenal, aren't they? That as people created in God's image, despite being created in God's image, we have all sinned, we've all let God down, we've all blown it. And yet because of Jesus, because Jesus loved us so much that that first Christmas, God sent Jesus to come and to live here on earth, to be a human being, to be a real man, to come ultimately so that he would die on the cross and his blood would be shed so that he would deal with your sin and my sin, all our screw-ups, all our mess-ups, all our foul-ups, so that if we put our faith in Jesus, we can have an eternal relationship with God so that we can come running into the arms of the Father God who loves us and longs for us to come and live in relationship with Him. Isn't God amazing? Isn't the good news, the gospel about Jesus, the good news of Jesus, isn't it amazing? Isn't it fantastic? It is truly amazing just to be reminded through these words that we've sung this morning of how much God loves us and what He's done for us. God is truly awesome. God is truly amazing. He is eternal, which means that He's always existed. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of messes with my head because everything in, in my life has a kind of beginning and an end, but God just has always been there. He's never not existed, and He always will exist. He just is. He's self-existent, and He's omnipotent, which means He's all-powerful. There's nothing that God cannot do. Those of you who have been in Sunday school or remember the kids being in Sunday school, that song that we sing, my God is so... Let's try again. My God is so... So... And so... There's nothing that he cannot do. I'm turning into Stuart. Sorry, Stuart. I'm starting to sing songs in my, in my sermon. <laughs> there's nothing that God cannot do. He just spoke and the whole universe came into being. Just spoke. And everything that we see in the universe, the stars, the moon, the planets, all just came into being. It was his great and his phenomenal imagination that imagined the moon, the stars, the sun, water, oxygen, carbon dioxide, trees, plants, birds, animals, fish, and mankind. And his imagination gave birth to life as he spoke, and it came into being. And he brought everything that exists into being. That is how powerful God is. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent, which means that he's present everywhere. He is here this morning by the power of his spirit, but he's also present this morning in the church that Martha's going to be going to in a few weeks' time in Nagaland in northern India. And he's present in the churches where some of our friends here this morning are from originally in Nigeria or from India where Matthew's from. God is present everywhere, but he's not just present in churches. He's especially present in the church, but he is present everywhere. There's nowhere we can go in this whole universe to escape God's presence. He's omniscient, which means he knows absolutely everything. On my very best day, I'm just about approaching average when it comes to intellect, and that's on a really good day. God just knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't already know or that he needs to know. There's no courses that he needs to go on. There's no extracurricular activities in heaven for God. He just knows everything. And he knows every single thought about you and about me. He knows every single thing about you and me. He knows, according to Jesus, the, very, the number of the very hairs on our head. And for some of us, that's, that's less of an issue for Jesus than others. But for some of you, that's a lot of hair. And he knows every single thing about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows you. Even before you speak, he knows the words that are going to come out of your mouth. God is holy, 
which means that he's completely sinless and he's separated from sin. In fact, he's the very opposite of sin. And the book of Hebrews that we've been working our way through at Regent here over the last few months tells us in, in view of all that God is, to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. God is so awesome. He is so magnificent that we need to treat him with reverence and awe. We need to treat God as if he's a fire that will burn us up and consume us if we're not incredibly careful and show him incredible respect. But God isn't just eternal. He's not just omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient and holy. God is also love. In fact, the Bible says that God is love. I wonder if, you were, if I was to ask each one of you this morning, what is the one word you would use to describe God? What would you say? Now, don't, don't answer that, but what would you say? What would that one word be? And in fact, according to the Bible, that one word definition, if we were looking for one word to sum God up, according to the Bible, it's this, God is love. He created love. He's the very definition of love. And within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there has been love flowing from one to the other for all eternity. And that love is spilling out from the Trinity through the Lord Jesus, and it spilled out when he came and died on the cross for us. His love is so great, it's so powerful that it led him to send his one and only son to come and to deal with our sin. God is holy, but we're very definitely not. And the Bible says that every single one of us has sinned and has fallen short of God's perfect holy standard. And our sin separates us from God because God is holy. And he can't tolerate sin in his presence. He has to punish sin and, and, and deal with it because he's righteous and he's, he's a God of justice. But because he loves us so much, instead of pouring out the, the wrath that we deserve for all of those sins that we've committed, all of that wrath of a holy God fell instead on Jesus there on the cross. One of the verses we looked at last week says this, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Jesus hung there on the cross outside of the city gate of Jerusalem. And as he hung there, he took your place, he took my place. He became our substitute sacrifice and took the punishment that we deserved. And in doing so, he made it possible not only for us to have our sins, all our mess-ups and screw-ups and foul-ups forgiven, he also made it possible for us to become holy, to be made holy as holy as Jesus himself. Now, don't get me wrong, we still live quite often very unholy lives. I certainly do. But when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and what he did for us as he shed his blood there on the cross, not only are we forgiven for every sin that we've ever committed and ever will commit, we also receive the holiness, the righteousness of Jesus. And God now looks at us and views us and sees us as being as holy and as perfect and as righteous as God. Now that just blows my mind. I don't know about you. And that means that despite God being this awesome and holy God, like a consuming fire, we can have, actually have an eternal relationship with God as our Father. Boldly, we can approach the eternal throne. We can come close to God through Jesus without any fear and boldly approach him and talk to him as Father and as our closest friend. Isn't that amazing? What a phenomenal, what a phenomenal God we have. What a phenomenal package of good news, the gospel that we have, that we celebrate. Isn't God amazing? Isn't the gospel, the good news about Jesus amazing? 
our God is a consuming fire, and yet we can run into his arms, and we can know his love and his care for us as a father to a child. And when we think about this, it should just change everything. Maybe this morning you've never actually come to the foot of the cross, as it were, and looked at Jesus there on the cross dying for you. Maybe you've never thanked Jesus for dying for you on the cross. And you've asked him, maybe you've never asked him to take your sin away. If you haven't done that, can I urge you to take that step today? To confess your sins, to thank Jesus for dying for you, ask God to forgive you and make you holy, and to turn away from everything that you know is wrong and commit yourself instead to living for God and serving him. But if you have, and I guess that most of us here this morning would, would say, yes, I have given my life to Jesus, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a believer in Jesus, then when we consider who God is and what God has done for us in and through Jesus, then surely the only logical, rational response can be to worship God with our whole lives. The Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament of the Bible, said these words, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, the word spiritual here can also be translated logical. In other words, when we think about God's mercy to us in sending Jesus to die for our sin, what other rational, logical, spiritual response can there be other than to offer everything we have in return as a living sacrifice to God? If we've trusted in Jesus, then his blood shed on the cross for us has made us holy. So when we offer ourselves to God to live for him, this pleases him. We're able to come to him and live in relationship with him because of Jesus. And so when we come and offer ourselves to him in worship, it pleases him. So when we think of God, of, of, of who God is and all that he's done for us, our whole life should be an act of worship. That is what God wants from us. It's not about giving God a bit of our life or, or, or bits of our life. God wants and deserves our whole life. Now, we, we often tend to treat our lives a bit like a pie. I guess a lot of us are going to eat a lot of pork pies this Christmas. That, it's that brown food time, isn't it? And, you know, you cut a pie up and you get wedges. And, and often we treat our life a little bit like a pie with wedges. We have our, our Sunday life. We have a, kind of our work life, our money life. We have our sex life. And we're okay with giving God our Sunday life, but not the rest. But God wants and He deserves the whole of our life, our work life, our money life, our sex life, and every other part of life that we could think of a definition for. And maybe this morning, you are a believer in Jesus. You have given your life to Jesus in the past, but you know, you know that you have wandered away from this. You've wandered away from God. You've not been living the way that you should be living. You've not been living where you should be living. You know, this morning, Jesus wants you to know that he loves you with a passion and he wants, with arms open wide, he wants you to come back and say, I'm back here and I come with nothing other than the blood of Jesus in my defense. And if that's you this morning, if you know you've not been where you should be, Jesus loves you. He wants to welcome you back into his arms, into relationship with himself. The next part of Hebrews 13 that we're specifically looking at today deals with this. It's all about worshiping God with our whole life. So let's read our passage, which is just a few verses in Hebrews 13. We're almost at the end of our studies in Hebrews. Hebrews 13 and verses 15 to 17. So with this whole kind of concept of the awesomeness of God and the amazing love of God in sending Jesus... 
the writer then says these words, verse 15 of Hebrews 13. He says this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. In in this brief section of Hebrews 13, we see three ways in which we're called to worship God by the way that we live and the way that we act. In verse 15, the writer says this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that praise His name. He's referring back to verse 12 where it tells us, as we looked at earlier, that Jesus suffered outside of the city. He hung there on the cross, suffering outside the city gate to make us holy through His shed blood. Because of Jesus, because of what He's done, we should continually, the writer is saying, offer to God a sacrifice of praise in the words that we say. The people reading this book or hearing it for the very first time were Jews who had trusted in Jesus, and they were used to the idea of animals being sacrificed as an act of praise, an act of worship. But the writer is saying that instead of offering animal sacrifices, they should offer the sacrifice of praise, the the fruit of their lips, because Jesus has already offered himself as the once and all And for all final sacrifice, there's no more need for any animal sacrifices. Jesus has done it all. And one of the sacrifices that God is pleased with from those that have trusted in Jesus is the sacrifice of praise. The words that come out of my mouth. The words from my mouth should be an act of worship. When we take time to stop and focus on Jesus and speak out praises to God, and sing out praises to God, which is what we've been doing this morning as the band have led us, this pleases Him. It's an act of worship, and whatever brings pleasure to God is an act of worship. And as well as singing, we can worship God with the the sacrifice of praise through our public prayers as we speak out in times of public prayer and worship and tell God how great He is. So how is that a sacrifice? Well, we're all here this morning, aren't we? And we've been singing out God's praises. And some of us have been praising God through our public prayers, that we've had some public prayer as well this morning. And that's a sacrifice because we didn't have to be here this morning. We could have just stayed at home. We could have had a lie-in. We could have gone out. We could have gone out for a coffee. We could have done something else. We didn't need to be here this morning. We've sacrificed to be here. We sacrificed our own time and our comfort and pleasure to be here to bring God the sacrifice of praise as we've sung and worshipped Him, and as we've prayed to Him. This is an act of sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of praise. And it should, never be a, it should never be costly to us, because when we think of what God has done for us, this is the very least we can do, surely, is to turn up on Sunday and worship God in, in sung worship. It's also a sacrifice when we, pay, when we pray publicly in a group. Lots of people find it really difficult, perhaps in a prayer meeting or in a time of prayer, to pray out loud. They find that difficult. And so when we do do that, it's a sacrifice because it's costly. It's uncomfortable. We don't always find that easy. It's a sacrifice, and it's a sacrifice that God is pleased with. And if you're somebody that struggles maybe in a, in a small group or in a larger group to actually pray out loud, which is probably most people, to be honest, can I encourage you to persevere with that? 
because it's a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that really pleases God. God loves it when we praise Him. God loves it when we pray out loud. God loves it when we worship Him in song. It's also a sacrifice of praise in the sense that when we confess His name with our lips, when we actually use the name of Jesus to, 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 talk, to, Jesus, to talk to people about Jesus, when we do that, when we talk about Jesus and we tell other people about Him, maybe in our family or at work, you know, sometimes we can face ridicule, can't we? We can face opposition and even persecution. There can be a great sacrifice involved when we talk about Jesus to those who don't know Him. And if you talk about Jesus at school or at work or with your family and you get laughed at or you get rejected or a little bit of kind of, you know, just even a little bit of an atmosphere and so on, remember that God sees that as a sacrifice of praise. God sees that. He sees what you do. He sees that little comment, that little word, that little sharing of a a gospel uh, tract or or giving someone a Bible. He he sees that. And He sees these sacrifices because they are sacrifices. They can be costly. And they bring him pleasure. They're, they're acts of worship. And that's on the flip side well, why we should never misuse the name of Jesus. We should never use Jesus' name as a, as a kind of casual comment or a, or a swear word or a, a blasphemy. Jesus' name is precious. So we should never misuse it. Instead, when we do use the name of Jesus, it should be in a way that honors him and worships him. Worship isn't just singing songs. It's so much more than that. It's whatever we do that brings God pleasure. And we can worship God in our driving, in our, in our conversation, in our internet use, in our social media use. We can worship God at work, in, in, the fa- in all sorts of different ways. If we're bringing God pleasure, it's an act of worship. And we were planned for God's pleasure. That's one of the reasons we were put on planet Earth, was to bring God pleasure. And we can do that in all sorts of ways, not just singing songs on Sundays, as good as that is. In verse 13, we read about another way of worshiping God with our whole lives rather than just, you know, for for an hour, hour and a half on a Sunday morning. The writer says this, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. The Greek word for uh, uh, for share here is um, koinonia, and it can be translated as sharing, having things in common, fellowship, and partnership. It's about us acting in ways that... uh, contribute to the welfare of others in our church family. And when we do that, it's a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. It's a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice because it costs us. It might cost us our time as we have somebody in our home. that we just think, well, you know what, I'd really just rather have a night to myself. But when we have somebody over who maybe is struggling or has got problems, that's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice because it costs us. It costs us time or when we spend time listening to somebody else's problems. It might cost us financially as we give money to another Christian believer who's in need and has problems. It might cost us uh, as we share our possessions with them as they're in need. But when we live like this and express our love and our care for others in our church family in, in these really practical ways, then we're worshiping God. We're blessing the other person for sure. But actually, it's an act of worship that brings pleasure to God. For with such sacrifices, the writer says, God is pleased. And without such practical expressions of love, our public praise of God, when we gather like this and we sing praise to God and we raise our hands and we express ourselves publicly, without the practical expressions of God during the week to back those up, then really our public praise lacks integrity. 
because we're just being one thing on a Sunday and, and not being that through the rest of the week. God doesn't just want us singing praises to Him on a Sunday morning. He wants our whole life to be an act of worship. How we handle our money, how we do our taxes, how we handle our work life, our sex life, our family, all of these things to be an act of worship that bring Him pleasure. Then the writer of Hebrews identifies a very different way of worshiping God with our whole lives rather than just the kind of Sunday morning slot. And it's something that we might not think of as being an act of worship to God. But as we've already seen, if we do something to bring God pleasure, if it's out of respect to Him, then that is an act of worship. This is what he says in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, this is awkward and difficult for me to teach on this morning because I'm one of the elders, I'm one of the leaders, one of the people this verse is talking about. But I'm going to do my best to be faithful to what God says here in this verse. If you look on your outline, I've put a whole list of Bible references which deal with the, the role of elders and the qualifications for elders and the various kind of things that the Bible teaches about eldership. Don't look at that now, but if you want to follow that up in your own time, I've put a whole load of verses and references for, there for you to explore that in your own time. When we do what this verse teaches us to do and we obey and submit to the elders of our local church, then we're worshiping God. We are, we're sacrificing. It's another way to sacrifice that pleases God. Why is it a sacrifice? Well, you might not like one or all of the elders. You might not agree with the elders. You might think you could do a better job than the elders, and you might be right. You might want to do things differently to the elders, or you might have different theological beliefs to the elders, all of which you are totally allowed to feel and think, by the way. And so to choose to submit to them and allow them to then lead the church and have a certain amount of authority over you is actually then quite a big sacrifice, isn't it? You're submitting yourself to a person or persons that you might not like, you might not agree with, and that takes a great deal of humility and a great deal of sacrifice. It's not something that perhaps comes naturally to us or something that we want to do. But when we do that, when we submit to the church elders, we're doing something that brings God pleasure. It's an act of worship. It's a sacrifice of praise. And it's not just other people submitting to the elders, that's the same for us as elders between each other. I submit to Paul and Keith, Keith and vice versa, or at least we're meant to. We do generally, I think. But we're meant to be submitting. The Scripture says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when we submit, particularly here to the elders of a church, it brings God pleasure because in His wisdom, He's decreed that every local church should be led and governed by a group of male elders. That is his plan. It's his design. If you read through the New Testament, that's what you see of, of church governance. And that group of men will one day have to give an account specifically for how they've led and governed the church they've been appointed as elders over. And, and I'm sure that Paul and Keith would agree with me when I say that I certainly find that thought incredibly sobering, and it weighs really heavily upon me that one day I will have to give an account for my life, absolutely, as we all will, to Jesus. But specifically, I will have to give an account of how I have governed and led as an elder in this church and in the previous church I was an elder in. That's hugely sobering, massively sobering. The writer goes on to say that church members should do this so that the elders' work will be a joy 
and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to anybody. The last thing he's saying you want is elders who are miserable and, and burdened by the behavior of church members. God wants us to obey and submit to the elders of our church so that their lives are not made even more difficult than they already are. The pressures and weight of responsibility of church eldership in a local church sometimes is just overwhelming. It's often immense, and at times it can be completely debilitating and overwhelming. I'll be brutally honest with you and say that there have been many, many times that I have almost stepped down from my role as an elder both here and in our previous church because the sheer weight and responsibility can be utterly overwhelming at times. And sometimes it can all just get too much. The building project, for instance, is something that at the moment keeps me awake very often at night. I wake up at two in the morning, bing, and I'm sending myself emails to remind myself of jobs I've got to do for the building. It's a huge, huge burden upon us. We're spending half a million pounds of the Lord's money. We're about to do something that is massive. We're not building developers. We've not done this before. It weighs heavily, and that's just the building. There are so many problems and issues that church elders in every church have to deal with, and many of those, probably most of those, are unknown to the, to the majority of the church members. And that's because they're confidential and pastoral issues. There will be a thousand and one things happening in this church, which we as elders are dealing with at any one time, which most people are not aware of. And that weight can be crushing. That responsibility can be overwhelming at times, where people's lives and marriages and all sorts of issues are at stake. So when people refuse to submit to the authority and leadership of the elders, then it creates even more problems and headaches for them. And as the writer says here in verse 17, who wants their elders to be under even more pressure? That isn't going to help anybody, especially not their wives and their kids, who bear often a unique pressure, often for the children of church elders being like kind of a goldfish bowl, everybody watching their behavior and how they live in a way that they don't for the, uh, other children in the church. The New Testament variously describes church leaders as elders and overseers and shepherds. Each title reflects a different aspect of their work, but wherever you read those titles, they're describing the same role. It's the church elders. And when Paul addresses the elders in the church at Ephesus in Acts 20, he says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his blood. You've got the title, uh, overseers and shepherds, and he's addressing the elders. It's God who's established plural male eldership as his system of governance and leadership in a local church. So as an act of worship to God, we should submit to that structure. We don't have to necessarily like or agree with one or more of the elders, but we do have to respect the office of eldership because it's God who's established it. And according to Paul here, it's not just the office of eldership that's established and appointed by God, it's also the individual elder. It's the Holy Spirit that appoints the overseers, the elders. And so when we refuse to submit to an elder or to the elders as a whole, then we're not, only, we're not only failing to worship God, we're actually rebelling against God himself. Referring to the elders of their church, Paul writes these words in his letter to the Christian believers in Thessalonica, in, in, uh, in the book of Thessalonians. He says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love because of their work. So God has established plural male eldership as his model for governing and leading a local church. He talks about here those who are over you in the Lord. They have authority. They have oversight. 
And it takes great humility to submit to anybody in life, especially if we're not overly impressed with them, and certainly if they have cause to admonish us or warn us or reprimand us. But sometimes the elders of a local church will have to admonish a church member. In other words, tell them off. And when that happens, it takes loads of humility to receive that. But to do so is to submit to God's order and God's structure for the local church. And when we submit to that and when we receive it well, it's actually an act of worship that brings pleasure to God. Now, having said all of that, this does not mean that church elders have the right and the power to do what they want, not at all. If an elder or a group of elders ever tells you to do something that is sinful, then you should absolutely reject that and refuse to do what they're saying. If an elder or a group of elders tries to do something in the church that's clearly unbiblical, then you should absolutely reject that and refuse to do what they're saying. These verses are not about giving the elders a, a blank check to say and do whatever they want. Quite the opposite. Whatever they say or do must always be completely biblical and godly. And if here at Regent you think that there are things that we are doing at any time uh, or we're saying that are unbiblical or are wrong, then we want you to come and challenge us about that. Okay? We want you to come and talk to us. We want you to come and challenge us. And even if it's not something unbiblical, if it's just a course of action that you think is unwise, that you would do differently, or you think there's a better way to do this, then please do come and talk to us about that because we want to hear from people. We, we want to take on board other people's views and ideas. We are not infallible. We will and we do get it wrong. We make mistakes. We don't always make the right decisions. We spend a lot of time in our elders' meetings praying and asking for God to help us because we just sometimes don't know what to do next with some situations. We don't know how to deal with problems and challenges. They're beyond our collective wisdom. And we really need God's help. And we want and we need your prayers and your help and your support and your input. We'll do our best to listen, but please do be prepared for us not always to agree and to still do what we plan to do. Everybody is entitled to have a say, but not everybody is entitled to have their way because at the end of the day, somebody has to make the decisions. And in God's plan for the local church, that's the elders. The buck stops with them. The buck stops here at Regent with the three of us. And, and as we read earlier, we are the ones, elders are the ones who will have to give an account for how they've governed and led the church, led their church. Church elders won't always get it right, and, and we certainly won't and certainly haven't. But assuming that what we're saying or doing is biblical, then the biblical and godly thing to do for a church member to do is to submit to them and follow their leadership. That's what this passage teaches us. Because when we do that, we're not just submitting to them, which is biblical, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in this verse tells us to submit to our leaders, to our elders. But we're actually submitting to God himself. And when we live like this, we're worshiping God, especially if we'd really rather not submit to them and we're having to sacrifice our own desires and our own ego in the process. So when we think about who God is, when we think about what He's done for us in and through Jesus, then our whole life should be an act of worship. Worshiping God isn't just about singing a few songs on a Sunday morning. It is a whole lifestyle. It's about worshiping God in everything we do, or at least trying to do that. And we do that by acting in ways that bring pleasure to God. And in our passage today, we've just seen three ways. There are many, many more that we could look at, but we've seen three ways in which we can please God. The words from our mouth can be an act of sacrificial worship 
whether that's in direct praise to God or whether that's in us telling other people about Jesus. Our actions in helping and caring for those in our church family can be an act of sacrificial worship. And the way that we act towards and relate to the elders of our local church and to those that they have put in places of authority in the local church can also be an act of sacrificial worship. Let's just take a few moments to pause and reflect on what we've looked at this morning. If you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never come to Him and had your sins forgiven and been made right with God, then this morning would be a fantastic, this Christmas would be an amazing time to do that, wouldn't it? Maybe you've been wandering, you've done that in the past, but you know that you've wandered away from Jesus. This morning, don't put it off any longer. Come back to Jesus. Come and receive His embrace and His love and His care. And if there's practical ways in your life where you think, yeah, I know that I'm not living this way, I'm not really worshiping Jesus in these practical ways in my life, maybe now is the time to to address those in our lives and and maybe all sorts of other ways that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. But let's just pause, take a few moments to think and reflect in the quietness. You might, if you're comfortable with this, just bow your head, close your eyes, and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to touch your heart wherever you're at with whatever's going on in your life this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we praise you and we worship you. We want the fruit of our lips to bring you honor and glory this morning. We thank you for all that you are. Thank you that you are so amazing. Your brilliance is staggering. We bow down humbly and worship you. You are God and we are not, and we are so very much aware of that this morning. We want to humbly just come before you this morning and bow before you and worship you, the God who is a consuming fire. We thank you too, Lord, that you are love. God is love. Thank you for your love. Thank you that it it crystallized, it materialized, it manifested itself in the Lord Jesus. Thank you as we look at Jesus there on the cross, we see your love demonstrated for us. God demonstrated his love for for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us, and we want to say in response that we love you. Help us, Lord, to live every moment of our lives as best we can as an act of worship, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is our reasonable, our logical, our rational, our spiritual act of worship. Will help us in these areas that we've looked at this morning, in the words that we say, and how we say them, in our actions, particularly to our, brother, our Christian brothers and sisters, and how we relate to church eldership. And Lord, in so many other ways too, that are ways in which we can bring you pleasure. Lord, would you help us, we pray. We want to worship you, not just now, but we want to worship you throughout this week. So help us to do that, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.